Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Good to be with you as we worship our God together. We do have a lot of folks with us this morning, and it is a delight to be with you, to worship with you. We have visitors with us, a lot of those as well. It's good to see you, welcome you, and let you know we're excited to have you here this morning worshiping God with us. Uh, Last Sunday morning, I made mention of the fact that as we are really getting to the very end of the year, that mentally that really bodes well for a moment of reflection. That seems to be mentally that's what we're kind of capable of doing. We do a lot of that. You get to the very end of something, it gives you a moment to kind of look back, to say, uh, where have we been? What did we do? How did it go? To look back and to take notice of those things. And so I thought... Because mentally we're already going to kind of be in that mindset, why not for the last several lessons here of the year use that? And what we have done beginning last week is really begin for us to think about what I've called some big ticket reflections. The big time reflections that we can take and that we can look and that we can evaluate in our own hearts to make sure On these reflective moments, our relationship with God is where it needs to be. And so last Sunday morning, we spent some time in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a, it is an incredible book to help us to think about the life that we're living, the walk that we're walking here on the earth that we live. And so this morning, we're going to use the book of Isaiah. And specifically from the book of Isaiah, we are going to have a very straight and a very frank study and discussion about worship of idols. Now what we're going to use is Isaiah chapter 44, for me in a lot of ways, is the straightest, the most frank passage that there is in scripture of God talking about the utter absurdity of idols. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about it in a very straight way. How ridiculous it is, how stupid it is, how dumb it is to put something above God in our life. How absurd that it would be for us not just to do that, but to even consider doing that. To me, that's a lot of what Isaiah chapter 44 is about. Certainly it is ridiculous to put something in front of God. To put a man-made something, to put something concocted by man, by our own self, or maybe our own self above God, it's absurd to do that. But the point that we're going to think about this morning, it is, it is absurd to even consider doing something like that. We're going to talk about it in a very straightforward way. We're going to use God's Word to help us with that. But it is in every capacity a big ticket reflection for us to take a look in our life. Maybe even at a time like of the year it is now. To make sure that God reigns supreme in our life. That it's not just that God is on the list of important things in my life but that God is the list. You see, sometimes we convince ourselves that what God is looking for is that He is high on our list, that He's there, that He's represented. 
Now there are lots of things maybe on my list and God is there or God is high or even God most of the time is number one. But biblically what God is looking for, he's looking for not to be high on our list or not to be sometimes at the number one spot in our list. He's not looking to certainly to even be on the list. He is looking to be solo on that list. Nothing else on the list but God. That's how he has been from the beginning. And we've seen that. We've seen that already. As Elsa read from us from Exodus chapter 20, it's kind of a remarkable piece of insight. As God is delivering his law for his people, this special relationship that he has with them, he has brought them out of Egypt. This promise that he has made to the descendants of Abraham back, way back in Genesis chapter 12, that he would with his descendants, that is Abraham, have a special, a unique relationship. And now this relationship is getting ready to take off. And he lays at their feet a law, something for them to think about, something for them to follow. And he begins there in Acts chapter 20, laying out what we commonly refer to as the Ten Commandments. And it is the first And the second and the third one that basically makes the same point. I am the only God in your life. And the point that we'll see in Isaiah chapter 44 is I am the only God. So before we get to Isaiah chapter 44, let's hit a little context of that passage. And sometimes we have in our mind the the question of why. Why why does God want us not to have idols? Why does God want to be number one? Why is it that if we have something in front of God, He wants us to tear it down? He wants us to get rid of it. Why? Why does He want to occupy that spot in our mind, that spot in our heart? Why does He want to occupy that spot? Well, He answers that for us. In this context, in Isaiah chapter 43, we're going to do a a fair bit of reading this morning, certainly from the 44th chapter, but to help us this morning, I want you to back up just a little bit and read with me, beginning in Isaiah chapter 43, beginning here in verse 22, we're going to bleed into chapter 44, a couple of verses, but I want you to be looking for the answer to this question. Now don't worry if you don't see it, I'm going to tell you the answer anyways. Here in just a second, I'm going to give you an opportunity to find it. But think about this question. Why? Why does God want us to tear down our idols? Let's read this passage together. Isaiah chapter 43, beginning in verse 22. He says this, But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me sheep. For your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have brought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will remember your, I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your, your case that you may be acquainted. Your first father sinned 
and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. Yet hear now, O O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offering. It will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Now, I want you to think about it. In this context of what we're going to see is the straightest, the bluntest, the most frank conversation about the absurdity of idols. The context, the setup, is this beautiful description of why God says, I want you to get rid of all of those things. What's the reason for that? The reason that we see here is God plainly telling them he wants to be the one to help. He wants to be the one to have an incredible relationship with us. He wants to cleanse us. He wants to forgive us. He wants to pour his blessings upon us. He wants to do all of those things. But in order for that to happen... We have to clear ourselves of anything that is in front of them. It almost reads here with desperation. Where God is making the point, you are living a life with idols and idolatry. And I want so desperately to help you. I want to be there for you. I want to bless you. But because your life is filled with this absurdity of idolatry, until those things are torn down, I'm not going to be able to do that. You see, why does God want us to tear down our idols? And not because he's some crazy egomaniac. He wants to help us. He wants to bless us beyond anything that we can imagine. So to help us see that, he makes a couple of points here in Isaiah chapter 44. And so in Isaiah chapter 44, there's a couple of points that really help us to see the foolishness of idolatry. There's some illustrations given that we're going to talk about, but I do think it's interesting that at the very outset of this discussion, the point is made that God, God has no peers. He has no contemporaries. He has no one that stands next to him. No one can be compared to him. There is nothing and there is no one that can ever be uttered, this is like God. Because nothing is to be compared to him. Nothing can be compared to him. And the point is made here at the beginning. Isaiah chapter 44 beginning in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. 
Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Let them declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you that from time and declared it? You are my witness. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. I want you to understand the points that God makes. And it doesn't take him very long to make it. He begins with the fact that God, he is the eternal one. He spans history. From the very beginning to the very end, he will be there. There is no other God. Verse 7, there is no one like God. There is no one and there is nothing that can do what God is able to do. People may claim it. The devil may whisper in our ears of the incredible things that materialism and material things can accomplish. But the point is frank. No one does what God does. Not just no one does what God does. No one can do what God can do. There is no other rock, he says. God is the only stability for our life. I find it interesting here in this text that, and we'll get into it, there is a lot to say about idols in Isaiah chapter 44. But maybe the question is, well, why doesn't God say a whole lot about himself? makes a few verses here in Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. And, and then we'll see in verses 9 through 20, he'll talk specifically about idols. Why does he say so little about himself? I think the answer to that is he says so little about himself here because the alternatives are utter absurdity. So he makes the point. There is no one like me. There is no peer for God. So after making this point, he moves on to idolatry, specifically giving us some illustrations. And we're going to look at this kind of in pieces. But we're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 9. If you are one... who is apt to write in their Bibles or underline or circle or highlight or draw arrows with pens or pencils of various colors. I don't care about any of those things, but if you fall into any of those categories, I would encourage you to find whatever tool you use and apply it to Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 9. One of the most frank sentences in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 9. Those who make an image, all of them are useless. I, I, I don't know how to build upon that. I, I, don't, I, I don't know what other words to put. I, I don't know what else to bring other than this sentence that God himself provides for us. 
The point is made, and again, the most straightest of terms. Those who make an image, an idol of some sort. He says, all, all of them are useless. All of them are useless. And so what he does at the very outset of this, in verses 9 and 10 specifically, is the point will make that only a fool would cast an idol. Only the foolish among us would put something above where God should be. Look at what he says, verse 9 and 10. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. Interesting, you may be looking at a translation that I use a New King James, and their precious things you may see, and what they delight in, which I like. Those things they delight in almost gives us a definition of what idolatry is. But in their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witness. They neither see nor know that they may even be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? It's a rhetorical question there in verse 10. We know the answer to that. A fool does that. A foolish person does that. What an incredible question that is. At the outset, all idols are useless. The follow-up question, who then would even fashion one? Why? Why would you do that? Who would do that? And the the answer is, a, a fool would do that. Who would fashion one? And then he builds upon it. In verses 12 through 17, he will give us a few illustrations of the foolishness of idolatry. And there found are some really practical things for us today. We're going to spend the most of our time. Look at the beginning of verse 12. It says, The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and, and works it, <coughs> excuse me, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with with chalk and he fashions it with the plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. And then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts so roasts and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, I I am warm. I have seen the fire, and the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image, he falls down before it and worships it, prays to it, and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. 
No one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge, nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its cold. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Now again, the foolishness of idolatry illustrated. He begins with the blacksmith. He he says a blacksmith, he does all of this work, all of this work to make this idol. But ultimately this idol whom he has sweated over and worked over doesn't help him at all. He makes a point. He does all of that work and he gets hungry, the blacksmith. He does all of that work and he gets thirsty. He does all of that work and he gets tired. That idol that he has fashioned doesn't help him at all. There's an interesting contrast here that I think certainly is there. It's really all over the book of Isaiah. The point about God and what he provides, specifically strength. To the weak. You see, the reality is pursuing idolatry makes us weak. How? Well, I'll tell you. Remember, they're useless. So, what it does when we pursue an idol, pursue something above God, it will become a waste, a waste of our time a waste of our effort, a waste of our energy, time, effort, and energy that could be given to God, we have wasted. It makes us weak. The point is made specifically about the wood. How can you trust in something that you have full power over? Can a piece of wood save you when a piece of wood cannot even save itself? We have the power over it. One of the incredible lines that I ran across in studying this week, just a point that I, I found as I was reading some things, was this. If you have to save it or you have to protect it, why worship it? Really interesting. Followed up with, if it is something that depends upon you, you cannot depend upon it. And I want you to think about that is every material thing in this world. The money that we make. People make that their idol every day of every week. But guess what? That money that we make, We've got to save it. We've got to protect it. We've got to look over it. We've got to look out for it. The material things that we may have, maybe it's a a beautiful car that you own that becomes your passion, becomes your everything. A beautiful home that you own that becomes your passion, becomes your everything. A, A beautiful whatever that you own that becomes your passion, becomes your everything. 
Whatever the case is, if it is here a material thing in this world, we have to protect it. We've got to cover it up. A beautiful car that is your passion, that is your everything, you park it in the garage. You keep it out of the weather. You do maintenance on it. You do for it. You protect it. You save it. It depends upon you and everything. Why? Why? Because it breaks down. Because it's a thing of this world. Guess what else you can put onto that list? Our own self. Or anyone else. Any other relationship that we have. Maybe it's even something like our families. A good thing that we should protect and we have responsibility over. But if we raise those people above where God should be, that's foolishness. Because those people break down and we've got to protect and those depend upon us. We do that with ourselves. We've talked a lot about over the last couple of years how we do that even with our own health. It becomes our idol. We see all of those things, all of those earthly things. That's the point that's made in Isaiah chapter 44. All of those things need us. But see, God, God doesn't depend upon us. God doesn't need us. We need God. There is a drastic difference in those two things. So who is it that will be worshipping? Think about the foolishness that is described of the man who cuts down a tree and builds a fire and cooks with it and warms himself with it and out of that same wood makes an image of some sort and falls down and worships it. You see, God doesn't depend upon us. He doesn't need us. We need Him. And the point then is made that our passion, our treasure, should alone be on God. That's what makes us live. Not other things, not other people. It is God. In a lot of ways, when it comes to idol worship, there is incredible irony to be found. Because it is generally the things that we value the most. But the irony, irony is, the reality is they have no value. Not little value, no value. Those things that we put in front of God and make our idols, what a foolish thing that it is, that we value them so greatly and God says have no value. God alone must be our desire. He alone must be our passion, our treasure. And so as this chapter kind of or discussion kind of comes to a close, one final point is made. Is that then the reality is all that I need is God. 
All that I need is him. Let's finish this discussion. Verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. You see, the point that is made here at the end of this discussion is, number one, he has bought us. We belong to him. Good or bad. It's great. And because of its greatness, we sing for joy because the Lord is our God. Why? Because of what he can do. Can he be depended upon? Absolutely. Can this table be depended upon? Can he be relied upon? Without a question. Can my family be relied upon? Not as God can. God can be depended upon. He can be relied on. Because of what he has done, we sing for joy. So what makes this a big ticket reflection? I'll give you one thing to think about as we close. We made the point earlier that as we stand here at the very end of a year, we're really in a very unique position mentally where we often find ourselves not only looking back to the year that was, but looking forward to the year that will be. In just a couple of weeks, the calendar will change. And ultimately, that's all that happens. But yet mentally, we're just in a very different place. Yes, the one day will be just like the other, but when one goes from 2021 to 2022, it just feels different. And so often at this time of the year, we are looking back and looking forward, and I'm going to encourage that. You look back into the year that was 2021, and you analyze what it was in your life that was your passion your ruling force, your driving force. Was it your job this past year? The money that you can make, the things that you can purchase, the hobbies that you have, the hobbies that your children have. What drives the bus? What makes the decisions? What ultimately rules? Is it God in every circumstance? Or is it God just some of the circumstances? I would have you to think and to think carefully that if it is God in some of the circumstances, those circumstances where it isn't God driving your life, that is where you will find your idol. And when you pinpoint what that idol is, I would encourage you 
to tear it out. To put yourself into a position in 2022 where God is the driving force in your life in all circumstances. Not some, not most, but all circumstances. Why would I do that? Because having something driving our life that isn't God is just simple absurdity, foolishness. And what a disastrous moment it would be if you find yourself standing before God the judge and he lays out for you in your life You were driven by sheer ridiculous absurdity. You lived the life of a fool. What a devastating thing that would be. Let's make sure that's not us. Make sure it's not us today. We have today. That's what God has given us. And so let's make sure today God is the driving force in our life. And if he blesses us with a tomorrow, let's make sure that day God is the driving force in my life. And if he blesses us with another week or with another year, let's make sure in that year he is the driving force in my life. Not some of the time, but all of the time. That I take that idolatry and I tear it away because it is useless Well, Brad is going to lead us in a song of invitation. It gives us an opportunity, as we've talked about this morning, to reflect, to think. Specifically here, our relationship with God. And it may be not where it needs to be. We've made mention just a moment ago, this opportunity that we have right now is a great one because it's the one that we have. So let's take advantage of it. Each and every one of us should be thinking about where we stand with God. And in your reflection, if you come to the realization that your relationship with God is not where it needs to be, I would encourage you to do something about that and to do something about that right now. It may be we can help you in that. If that's the case, you let us know as we stand and as we sing.